Thank you, Sergio. Sergio's not feeling great today, so we appreciate you being here among us. Rhonda and I had to um, overseas this afternoon. Um, we're going to be involved in a one-week mission trip. I'll be doing some uh, speaking, some vision casting, and meeting with a bunch of WBC missionaries, so that's going to be um, a whole lot of fun. We're looking forward to it. One of the downsides is we're going to miss a whole week of this presidential discussion that's taking place in our country. Yeah, it's going to be hard not to be around for that. But let me just talk about that for a moment. I want to talk, before we get into our series, about um, the Christian and politics, and I want to talk about it at 35,000 feet. Um, and I just want to say a, a couple of things to create a framework for us as, as we move forward, regardless of where you are, whether you, you know, you're voting for this candidate, that candidate, you're not voting. Um, here's what I want to say. Um, we all believe that Jesus alone is the Savior of the world, right? Okay, we're sure? We all believe that Jesus alone is the Savior of the world, right? Okay, therefore, we also believe that Jesus, not politics, is the hope of the world, right? Right. Okay, and therefore, we believe that politics is important, and very important, but it's not ultimate, right? And so, uh, we believe that God will be just as sovereign the day after the election as he is the day before, right? Okay, that's a framework. The framework is God is good, God is good all the time, and he will be just as sovereign the day after the election as the day before. So we do not, here's what this means, boots on the ground, we do not overweight politics or underweight it. We don't overweight, we don't underweight it. But we understand as followers of Christ who are aligned with the kingdom of God, a different kingdom that it's not politics that's going to restore our culture, it's the church. And so if there was an ever, op ever an opportunity for us to be the church, it's right now over the next couple of weeks. This is not the time to be angry. This is not the time to withdraw. This is not the time uh, to sulk. God is sovereign. God is in control. And the church is the hope of the world because Jesus is the hope of the world. So let's be the church, especially the next couple of weeks. Amen? Yes. All right, now let's go to our series. I am really looking forward to today because today I want to talk about singleness, marriage, and the gospel. And I want to speak to your dreams, to your deepest longings to be loved, to be known, to be accepted, to be valued, your longings for relationship. These longings reside deep inside every single one of us. And one of the ways I can illustrate this is think about your reaction when you see a video, a, a picture, read a story about an orphan on the other side of the world. There's something that goes inside, on inside all of us that bothers us, that, that, that image so disturbs us. Why? 
because his longings, her longings, are your longings. And those longings are being categorically denied. And you identify, unconsciously dip inside with that orphan. Because that guy's longings, your longings. Now let me again begin with singleness. Uh, when we moved, relocated to this campus over eight years ago, we saw a significant increase in the number of singles that are a part of Wheaton Bible Church. But I want to be honest about something. Just as the culture as a whole is diminishing, uh, minimizes marriage today, so suburban churches like ours tend to minimize singleness. And so what happens is singles among us, singles in, in our church kind of look around and, and they feel like they don't fit. They feel like outsiders looking in and some of it is our attitude, much of it is our attitude. But the Bible says that is wrong. That is antithetical to what the church of Jesus Christ should be about. Uh, 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 especially a church in the suburbs. Because the Bible, now hear me in this, the Bible is wonderfully pro-marriage and pro-single. Now let me show you this from a single's perspective. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses uh, 7 and 8. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 and 8. Long chapter on marriage and singleness. Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift and, uh, from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now Paul begins to land this, and he says, Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. As I do. So like Jesus, the apostle Paul was single his entire life. That means the founder of Christianity, Jesus, and its leading theologian were single the whole time they were on earth. So you singles, do not let Satan whisper in your ear. Do not uh, 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 let a other Christian, a married Christian, uh, in any way deceive you uh, so that you think, you know, my deepest longings cannot be satisfied as single. Nothing could be further from the truth. And you married couples, especially you uh, married couples with adult children, be very careful about the messages you send. We have both adult singles and, uh, and married uh, children. And it's just been interesting to watch this uh, play out in, in our family. Never ever forget that Jesus was the perfect man, the only perfect man. We are told that repeatedly in the New Testament, and Jesus was single. In our passage, Paul calls singleness good. He uses the word good. It has echoes from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So singleness is good. As a matter of fact, it's so good, he describes it as a gift. Twice he uses the word gift. Now, in what sense is it a gift? Well, it's not a, a gift in the sense that you have absolutely no desire, you never even think about wanting to get married. 
It's not a gift in the sense that it, 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 it takes away any desire to be married, any struggle with not being married. No, no, that's not what gift means here. Gift means the same thing as Paul uses the word elsewhere. Think spiritual gifts. It's a God-given grace. It's a God-given capacity. In the case of singleness, it can be temporary or it can be permanent. And it's a, this capacity to seek the good of others. The body of Christ, people that don't know Christ, to serve and to serve and to be involved in ministry. So look at how Paul unpacks it a little later in this same chapter, beginning in verse 32. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. Now, good luck with that, husbands. And his interests are divided. Now verse 35. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in the right way in an undivided devotion, in undivided devotion to the Lord. In other words, what Paul is saying is singleness is a gift. It's a gift. Now, some of you are concerned about Christianity. Maybe you're just visiting, you have some questions, you have some doubts. And one of the things you're concerned about is that Christianity seems so very narrow. So let me speak to this or illustrate why it's not narrow by, by telling you this. Christianity was the first of all the major religions that upheld singleness as a noble, honorable, beautiful way of life. The very first, where your longings could be met in Jesus Christ. All other religions treated marriage and family as an absolute. Uh, there is no honor without family honor, without marriage honor. Uh, there is no legacy without having uh, heirs, without having children. So in the first century, come, Christianity comes along, and what does Christianity do? It de-idolizes marriage. It says singleness is good. And I want you to understand that act alone was one of the most significant sociological acts in all of human history. Now, why did Christianity maintain this? Because Christianity claims that our significance, our honor, our legacy is found in Jesus Christ and being a part of the deeper bond, the deepest bond, the body of Christ. Now, by the way, if you don't subscribe to our daily devotionals that come in your email every day of the week, preparing you studying, helping you study to prepare you for Sunday sermon. Man, I want to encourage you to get those emails. Catherine McNeil oversees this and does about half of our uh, daily devotions. And her devotions this week were just incredible because she linked singleness to the body of Christ, singleness and, and, and the church. And so if you don't have our daily devotions, and hundreds of you do, man, go get them. Go to wheatonbible.org. Uh, slash subscribe, and, and, and we'll take care of you. Now, 
I'm about to move on, but I, I want to say one thing as a caution to those of you that are single. And, and really, this has application for those of you that are married as well. And here I'm borrowing from Tim Keller, who pastors the church in Manhattan that is 70% single. Mostly younger singles. And what Dr. Keller says is, man, singles, be careful. You need to avoid two extremes. The one extreme is over-desiring marriage, and the other extreme is under-desiring marriage. Because if you're over here and you over-desire marriage, what happens is you begin to view yourself as kind of locked up, uh, stifled in purgatory until you get a get-out-of-jail-free card and get married. And then what happens if you view, if you over-desire marriage as a single, then what can happen, often happens, is you make some really bad decisions, often out of desperation. But if, on the other hand, you under-desire under marriage, then what, you develop a disdain for what the Bible calls good. And you develop this attitude, and it poisons your view of what the Bible has to say. I, I don't want that for you. Now, Keller takes it a step further. And let's talk about culture. In traditional cultures, Asian, Hispanic, and on and on, the problem, and there are, all, there are always problems in all of our cultures, the, the problem is there a tendency in those traditional cultures to um, over-desire marriage because there's a, a tendency to make an idol out of the family. In non-traditional Western cultures, the tendency is just the opposite. The tendency is to make an idol out of independence. Uh, because, we, uh, because in Western cultures, there's a tendency to make an idol out of individual happiness. The most important thing in life is that I be happy. Never mind anybody else. Now, my point is that according to the Bible, both family and happiness are important. Family and independence are important, very important. But we must not overweight them on the other hand, or under, on the one hand, and underweight them on the other. Now, let's go on. Let's talk about marriage. You know the conversation in the West today, and by the West, I mean the United States uh, you know, that traditional marriage is on its last legs. That traditional marriage, one by that I mean one man, one woman for life, is oppressive, it's anti-female, it um, stifles expression. It's just a piece of paper. It uh, denies the rights of same-sex attraction. So a result of all this and the changes in our, our culture, what is happening is cohabitation is increasing dramatically. In spite of the fact that secular, secular research tells us that cohabitation does not create a stable environment for children. It's not good for kids. Because what happens is usually one of the parents lives elsewhere after time. 
So when we begin the conversation of marriage, we need to know what's going on around us, but we need to understand that marriage is God's idea. God thought it up. And I want you to see how he expresses it right at the beginning of the Bible. I mean, two pages into the Bible in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. We read, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So what is marriage? Well, marriage is leaving, marriage is cleaving. Here the verb is uniting. And marriage third is becoming one flesh. And the Bible uh, tells us that God designed marriage to do at least four things. First, to create a stable environment for children, and ultimately through that for culture. If the family is destabilized, the culture is destabilized. All the research tells us that. And then second, God designed marriage uh, to refine our character. My character as a husband, your character as a wife. I love Gary Thomas's statement that, that marriage ultimately isn't designed to make us happy, it's designed to make us holy. And then third, that God has given us marriage to fulfill part of our relational longings. We tend to overstate this in the church, and we tend to imply that if you get married, all your relational longings are going to be fulfilled. That's just not true. But you'll be way down the road. And then finally, and most importantly, God gives us marriage. God has designed marriage to be a picture of the loving relationship between Christ and the church. As a matter of fact, at the end of the longest passage on marriage in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, you know, I've been talking about marriage, but I want you to understand when I talk about you husbands and you wives, I'm talking about something bigger. I'm not just talking about marriage, I'm talking about the relationship between Christ and, and the church. And to the extent your marriage is full of joy and there's loving interaction and, and uh, uh, wonderful, winsome uh, uh, commitment between the two of you, then you know what you're doing? You're picturing the same that is taking place in heaven, in eternity, this love relationship between Christ and the church. So Paul says at the end of Ephesians 5, the mystery is great. I, in other words, I don't completely understand it. But I'm not just talking about marriage, I'm talking about Christ and the church. So you singles, one of the greatest contributions you can make to culture, one of the greatest evangelistic opportunities you will ever have, one of the main ways you can glorify God is by living a life of joy and contentment in your singleness. You married couples, the same is true for you in, in, in marriage. And when your neighbors and your, your co-workers and others in your life see the love relationship that exists in your marriage, man, they're seeing something better. They're seeing something way more attractive. They're seeing something that is simply glorious that they don't see generally in the culture as a whole. And suddenly, without even knowing it, as a single or married, you are speaking to the deepest longings of their hearts. And man, is God glorified. Glorified by your joy. And frankly, today, that is the greatest apologetic. That is the greatest argument we have 
for Christian singleness and Christian marriage. Now, I want to help you get down this road towards joy by um, saying three things. And here I'm speaking especially to those of you who are married, but it applies to you as singles. First of all, adjust your expectations. Adjust them. Look at this um, uh, wonderful little verse from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. Uh, We tend not to think this is a great verse on marriage. It has a lot to do with marriage. And uh, God is speaking here, the heart is deceitful above all things. Oh, that's great. But it gets worse and beyond cure, beyond cure. And then who can understand it? I just, I'm sorry, I love this verse. And I, I love this verse because Jeremiah is painting an accurate but bleak picture of the human heart. In other words, your heart and your spouse's heart. And what Jeremiah is saying is that your spouse will never ever be your Messiah, your Savior. And your spouse is not the fourth member of the Trinity. You wives are saying, well, you don't need to tell me that. (laughs) Look at this quote from an ethics professor at Duke. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find this right person. The moral assumption, this moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We're just having a lot of fun, aren't we? Uh, We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Uh, Right? Yeah, cowards. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. Uh, For marriage, we are not the same person after we entered it. Right? We agree, yeah? Yeah. Uh, The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger, the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Now, why do I quote this after Jeremiah 17, 9? The reason is Jeremiah says it's more complex than this. Jeremiah tells us this stranger has a sinful heart. This stranger has good days and sometimes just awful days. And idols in the heart that stifle. God's grace in Jesus Christ. We have five adult daughters, a basketball team. Uh, Most of them are married, but not all of them. And there's something I've learned as a father over the years. And that is, daughters are one of the great delights and the great, great mysteries of the universe right? Great delights, unbelievable delights, unbelievable ministries uh, in the whole universe. I mean, one daughter likes this, another daughter hates that. You know, one daughter wants to process this, another daughter wasn't, doesn't want to talk. Uh, and they get into it, and it's, it's just fascinating. Delight, mystery. Their hearts are beyond understanding, Jeremiah 17, 9. The same is true with your spouse. Oh, I know him. No, you don't. Uh, No, you don't. 
Marriage is therefore both wonderful and wacky. It's, it's both delightful and difficult because we're sinful fallen people. We live in a sinful fallen world. But Jeremiah's point is that we have marriage problems. We have singleness problems because we have heart problems. So the marriage problems are the fin. The singleness problems are the fin. The heart problems are the shark underneath the water. And my experience as a pastor over these decades has been that, man, you show me the marriage of rocks. I mean, you show me the marriage of a couple that exudes joy in their marriage, and I will show you a couple that face their heart problems. And they face them individually, and then they face them as a couple. And they own them, and they're honest about it. Man, I got an idol here. Man, this makes me angry. And they live a life of continual repentance before the Lord. There is no other way to a healthy marriage. Now, the second thing I want to say to help you get down this road is remember your responsibility isn't to change your spouse, it's to serve your spouse. Uh, whether your spouse appreciates it or not. What location is to real estate services to marriage? It's the strike zone. It's the world series in the kingdom of God. Interestingly, Jesus has this incredible statement that has nothing to do with marriage, but everything to do with marriage. Just one sentence, Matthew chapter 23. Look at this. Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Now this is counterintuitive. Because we think greatness is a, you know, appearance, power, fame, that kind of stuff. Jesus says, no, greatness in the kingdom of God is just the opposite. It's being a servant. Being a servant. Living a life of service, whether it's appreciated or not. Now, there are two things, two things that I aspire for as a husband. There are two things I... Uh, desire for my kids who are married to experience. There are two things I desire for my kids that are single to experience. For all of you that are married, for all of you that are single. And the first is that I would, that we would live a gospel-centered life. Where we're not locked in on what we have to do because we can't do enough, but we're locked in and blown away by what Christ has done. And that's the daily reality, the power by the Spirit, how we live our lives. Jesus, you did this for me? Okay, I, I can handle this. And the second is that we would humbly serve each other. Now, can you tell me as a father what's more important for my ki adult kids? than living a gospel-centered life, and then learning to humbly serve. And so I want to say to you, I want to commend verse 11 to you, meditate on it, memorize it, uh, make it a life first relative to your, your, your marriage, your, 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 your ministry. <laughs> now third, and here I'm going to get more specific. And I may step on the toes of a couple of you, but I, I tend to do that sometimes. So let me just apologize up front, okay? As important as communication is in marriage, I think it gets overstated. I'll tell you why. As important as conflict resolution is in marriage, I think it gets overstated, and I'll tell you why. The number one predictor of a healthy marriage is friendship. Friendship. 
Not communication, not conflict resolution, but friendship. Now think about it with me. There are all sorts of us who are not verbal. We're not good communicators. Um, you know, it's a guy that comes home after a busy day at work. You know, you know how was work? I'm fine. Then it's just another fine. Then it's, yeah, fine. Then it's fine, 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 fine. And then finally he says, what's for dinner? <laughs> and depending, yeah, yeah. And um, I get that. Yeah, that's how some of us feel. And then, depending on your family of origin, if you came from a family that, man, there was tons of conflict or avoided conflict, either one, you may, when you smell conflict coming, you run. So communication and conflict avoidance aren't the essence of a healthy marriage. What is this friendship? One of my favorite secular authors, John Gottman, says this in his wonderful book on marriage. Happy marriages are based on deep friendship, a mutual respect for and enjoyment of each other's company. These couples tend to know each other intimately. They are well-versed in what each other likes, dislikes, personality quirks, hopes, and dreams. They have an abiding regard for each other and express this fondness not just in big ways, but in little ways, day in and day out. He's describing friendship. He goes on and talks about Nathaniel and Olivia. Nathaniel works crazy hours, insane hours. He has for years, and he will continue to f for years. In many marriages, in a different marriage, that would be a deal breaker. But Nathaniel and Olivia have figured out a way to make that work by talking to each other regularly during the day. So if Olivia has a doctor's appointment, Nathaniel calls. If Nathaniel has a big, uh, tough meeting, uh, Olivia will call later to, uh, to check in. They know what each other likes and dislikes. Uh, Nathaniel's not around much. And when he cooks um, pancakes on Saturday morning, he always puts chocolate chips in hers because she loves them. Now, Gottman continues. Look at what he says. If all of this sounds humdrum and unromantic, it's anything but. Through small and important ways, Olivia and Nathaniel are maintaining the friendship that is the foundation of their love. As a result, they have a marriage that is far more passionate than do couples who punctuate their lives together with romantic, expensive vacations and lavish anniversary gifts, but have fallen out of touch in their daily lives. They're no longer friends. Friendship fuels the flames of romance because it offers the best protection against feeling adversarial toward your spouse. And we're all going to have those days, those feelings, all of us. And it's friendship that is the predictor of a sustainable, healthy, wonderful marriage. Now, that brings me to the gospel. Why the gospel? Because here's the reality. In spite of the fact, this beautiful fact that the Bible is so very pro-single and so very pro-marriage, and the Bible has a fair amount to say about both. Today, even in our churches, there is so much failure with singleness and marriage. 
And the reason is we have lost sight of the gospel and its life-changing power. As others have pointed out, all major religions are instructions sprinkled with stories, but not Christianity, not the Bible. Christianity is different because Christianity is a story sprinkled with instruction. So take Islam. In Islam, it's your adherence to the five pillars that saves you. It's what you do. It's you obeying the instructions. But the Bible isn't like, this book isn't like that. Now, if you're new to the Bible or uh, you're just beginning to read the Bible, you, the instructions may seem overwhelming, but I want you to understand the Bible isn't primarily about instruction. It's sprinkled with instruction, but the Bible is the true story of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in human history. And so there's instruction sprinkled about, but it's a story. Uh, so Jesus is debating the Pharisees in John chapter 5. Uh, the Pharisees were experts in the Old Testament, and Jesus has the audacity to say to these Pharisees, you have completely missed the point of the Old Testament because you focused on instruction, and the Old Testament is about me. Look at what he says. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is saying the Old Testament is all about me. All about me. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, these religious hypocrites who knew the Bible, knew the instruction, that if you don't see the story of the Bible, if you don't understand the story of the Bible, then the instruction doesn't make any sense. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the story. And if you don't get this today, then all that you have is what the Pharisees had. And we call it religious moralism. You're just trying to, you're huffing and puffing, trying to be good, saying to God, you know, um, if I'm good and I obey the instruction, then at the end of my life, you owe me. And Christianity says no. God gives you a perfect record, perfect righteousness in Jesus Christ that you can't earn, that you don't deserve. So believe in Jesus. Follow Jesus. Because Christianity is about the story of Jesus. It's ultimately not about instruction. And if you miss this, the instruction becomes a crushing weight, not a life-giving power. So let me illustrate this. Let's take Adam. Jesus is the true Adam, pictured in Adam, who also faced a test in a different garden, but didn't fail. Jesus is the better Isaac, who allowed himself to, to experience the dagger of God's justice and to allow that dagger to fall on him. Jesus is the better, the, the true David, 
who slayed the greater giant of sin, pictured in the David and Goliath story, and whose victory is freely given to all who believe, just like David's victory was fear, freely given to the Israeli soldiers in the story. Jesus is the better Esther, who doesn't say, if I perish, I perish, but says, when I perish, and he goes to the cross. Jesus is the real sacrifice. Jesus is the true temple, and on and on and on. But if you don't get this, then when you come to the David and Goliath story, all you see is David and Goliath. And it's not good news. Because you can't live like David. You see, the only way we can defeat and dethrone the, the, the giants in our lives, the idols of, pick them, anger or lust or pride or, or greed or on and on. The only way we can dethrone those, whether you're single or whether you're married, is by basking in what the true and better David did for you on the cross. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so I want to say to you, those of you that have spent a long time studying the different books of the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, do not, do not miss the forest for the trees. And if you find yourself saying, man, man I really love the, the, the book of Joshua, and you, you don't see how Joshua points to Jesus. You're going to miss the forest for the trees because the Bible is one story. And the center of the story, the hero of the story, is Jesus. And if Jesus is the center of the story of the Bible, then Jesus must be the center and the key to singleness and marriage. Amen? Man, if we get this, it changes everything. Because Jesus is the solution to our deepest longings. It's the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we say value number one in the values that we have just preached through is that the gospel isn't just the starting line, it's the whole race for us as Christians. And let me conclude with this. Obsession with the gospel, the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and what it means for your life is the one obsession that will dethrone all other obsessions, all other addictions, all other idols in your life. And it's the one obsession that will satisfy your deepest longings. You won't find them in singleness alone. You will not find them in marriage alone. They are found in the gospel and the wonder of our Savior. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you, and if we're honest, and this has been so true in my life over the years, when um, for those of us that read the Bible, often we come to the proverb, we come to the psalm, we come to the law, we come to a story in the Old Testament, and we don't see Jesus. Would you change 
that in our lives? Would you help us to see Jesus in the Bible, that Jesus is the center of the center? That Jesus is the center of the universe, that Jesus is all around us? And, and would you deliver us from thinking we are going to satisfy our deepest longings horizontally? So give us that grace, the grace of resting in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.